Howdy, welcome back to another episode of our weekly podcast. We know you've got a buffet of media to choose from each week. That's why we put a lot of effort into finding stories from the Bible that have relevant lessons for us today. I hope you enjoy the church. But today, we're very blessed. I hope you're planning to stay for potluck. We've got lots of food. And we're going to eat like kings tonight again. So it's a day of feasting spiritually and physically. And then we'll have a part two after lunch that starts at 2 p.m. So those online, you'll want to tune in at 2 p.m. But uh, I am extremely grateful that Dr. Timothy Peranek is here today to share a message that is burning in his bones that we had lunch yesterday and it was exciting to hear what he's going to talk about. And I uh, encouraged him, uh, you've ever read that expression, to speak freely. That Please speak freely. Uh, It was a few months ago that I was shared something online and I heard some words shared by Brother Tim and then I found his ministry's website and then I ordered a book he wrote and it was so amazing, so eye-opening. And I thought, man, that would be great if he could come talk to our church. Well, you know, a few weeks went by and then I think a number of us were at ASI and Uh, Randy had him cornered in the hall at ASI and Dr. Balboa piled in. No, but they were having a good conversation and I stumbled in and I was just like, oh, this is, I just read your book. This is such a small world. Well, then a few weeks later, I was having lunch with Pastor Glenn over at the Calhoun Church and we were talking about all these different things going on in the world. And he's like, well, you know, my friend Tim, he, and he starts to tell me about his friend Tim. And I go, well, I just, you know, is this the same guy? I just read his book. And he's like, yeah, he's my friend. Look, I'll text him right now. (laughs) That was awesome, to prove you were friends. And I said, well, while you're texting him, ask him if he'll come speak to our church. And I'm so grateful you said yes. So he came up yesterday. He'll be with us all day today. And uh, I am extremely grateful you're here. And I pray the Lord will speak to you and through you to us today. So thank you, Brother Tim. Thank you for having me here today. It's a a blessing. I hope that I can live up to sometimes these introductions. You know, after a while, you kind of want to hide and be like, I'm sick or walk out. You know, you, you feel like you won't be able to do it. But that's not about me. It's about the Holy Spirit. And I just pray that that will fulfill us. But before we pray, I wasn't planning on this because I had no say in, in the scripture reading or anything like that. But I just wanted to point out something. And this does tie into what we're going to be talking about throughout the day. So if you go back to your scripture reading, which is in Isaiah 35, starting in verse 3, uh, this, this, is a, this is a prophecy concerning the Messiah. That's what it is. And you'll, it'll be unmistakable as we read it, but it's important because we're going to be talking about sorcery, we're going to be talking about medicine, we're going to be talking about the distinctiveness of God's healing message. And so notice it says in verse 3, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those that are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance. With recompense of your God, he will come and save you. Amen. I'm sure that this was powerful in the days that Jesus was walking the earth. This message was what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear about Messiah that would come and deliver them from the enemies. But this verse 4, they would have to wait. And so will we. But verse 5, to show that Scripture would certainly be fulfilled, listen to what the Messiah would do. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. And the waters shall burst forth in the wilderness, and the streams of the desert, the parched ground, shall become a pool, and and a thirsty land springs of water, and the habitations of jackals, where each lay, there shall be grass and rushes. This is the idea of the Messiah, the Messianic promise, that not only will he restore the sick to health, but he will heal the land. And so here's the thing. Satan reads these verses too. And everything the Messiah does, the enemy tries to counteract. But how do we know the difference? How do we know what is what? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians And I just want you to see how the enemy tries to counterfeit everything. Everything that the Messiah has done, will do, everything. So starting in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 
verse 12. And he says this, But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. What is he talking about? Well, what he's talking about is that Paul's going to continue to live the way that he's living and working and striving for the church, that those false apostles who are coming in, they would be exposed by his and others' example of true godliness, piety, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he says in verse 13, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Right away, while the apostles were still alive, performing miracles and doing all this, the enemy was seeking to mimic them, to imitate them, to show that he could bring in workers who were like them, who would say sometimes the same things with a pleasing address, but they were not. And notice what he says in verse 14, and no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. This is why Satan uses any avenue he can, and I'm going to be talking about sorcery, how it is the great imitator. But the idea that Satan himself would transform himself into an angel of light, verse 15, it says, therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. And so this... This is what Satan does. He tries to imitate the very things of Christ. And we're told in Revelation 18, uh, 21 through 24, we're just going to read verse 23, we're told about how Babylon is going to be destroyed, how, the, how, the, how it's going to be thrown in the water like a, a tide around a millstone, how the, voice of, how, how the voice of mirth and song will all be away. This corresponds with, I believe, Isaiah, Isaiah 45, with the destruction of Babylon. But this is the idea in verse 23, the last part is the part which gets all the glory, but it's something that we have to think about. And it's talking about Babylon being no more. And it says this, For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. My contention is that Satan is working to use sorcery, to use everything at his disposal to transform his work as the work of the apostles, an angel of light. That's what he is wanting to do. But how do we know the difference. How do we know the difference between Satan's methods and God's methods? How do we know the difference? It's in the Word of God, and that's where we're going to go after we pray. Let us bow our heads. Gracious and heavenly Father, I thank you for your holy scriptures, for in them is an everlasting life. This is the great detector, and we are to cling to this as a light in a dark place until the day star appears in the sky and shines in our hearts and that we can join you. Help us, Lord, as we go through this study to understand these things, to put them in our hearts, and most importantly, Lord, to study to see if these things are so like Bereans. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So, for our first passage that we're going to get into, let's go to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. And this is where we really begin to see sorcery show up right away. One of the great works that Moses did, obviously there are many, was to begin to free his people from the hand of Pharaoh in the great Exodus. So uh, Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 8. This is the great work that he did. And as he's setting off to separate his people from the Egyptians, notice what happens to stop them. And so he goes to, he goes to Pharaoh, and, after, and, remind, and just to be reminded that what was it that God gave Aaron and Moses to do, right? He gave them the ability, he gave Moses the ability to stick his hand in his coat, and he would pull it out, and it was leprous, and then stick it back in, and pull it out, and it was non-leprous. Then he gave Aaron his staff, and if he threw it on the ground, it would turn into a snake, and then when he picked it back up, it would turn into a staff. He gave them things to demonstrate that God was with them, and that this he was to show to Pharaoh to convince them that he needed to let God's people go. So in verse 8, 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves. Then you shall say to Aaron, Take the rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before the Pharaoh, before his servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. So the magicians of Egypt also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. And Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. There's more I want to say, but let's go to the next one. Also, staying in chapter 7, let's go to verse 17. And so this one, they were commanded to, to turn the water into blood. And so it says this, and says, Thus says the Lord, By this you know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river, which is the Nile, with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall turn to blood. Right? And then what happens in verse 22? Then the magicians of Egypt did with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them. Let's go to uh, Exodus chapter 8, starting in verse 5. He does this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, said, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause the frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the, over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came out and covered the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up the frogs of the land of Egypt. Now the next sign, which is the sign of lice, which comes out, they, the, the wise men were not able to do. And if we study these carefully, we know that this is not exactly what uh, Aaron and Moses did. Like, for example, with the serpent, when he threw down the rod and, and it turned into a serpent, what happened? Well, we know that the Egyptians did the same thing, but Aaron's rod actually swallowed the other rods. And if you read very carefully, they didn't actually do what Aaron did. It made it look like they did. Their rods looked like snakes, but they weren't exactly like it. It looked so similar that Pharaoh could sit there and harden his heart. And what about the blood? Could the, could the sorcerers turn all the river into blood? No, they could not. But by a trick, by deception, they could create the appearance that they could do the very same thing that God's messengers could do. And what about the frogs? Could they literally make frogs come out of the water onto the land and take over the land? No, they could not. But they could imitate it in such a way that it would harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, I want you to understand this. This hardening of Pharaoh's heart, which we read here in these early chapters, is something that had been going on for a long time. As we read in Exodus 5, chapter chapter 5, verse 2, what is it that... Uh, Pharaoh says to Moses and Aaron, he says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Sorcery had taken its toll on Pharaoh that they no longer remembered the God who had given them everything that they had when he delivered them from famine through the hand of Joseph. They had forgotten all about that. Now, because of sorcery, because of the teachings of the Egyptians, because they could imitate the very things of God, he didn't even know who God was anymore and didn't care. This is the power of sorcery. Now, you have to understand this. When we think of sorcery, when we think of magicians, and we think of enchantments, we think of someone wearing a hat and has a, has a wart on their nose and rides a broom. We sometimes think of people who take chicken bones and throw them on blood and try to do some sort of dance and and, and can tell the future. Or some of us are old enough to remember uh, Miss Cleo's Psychic Friends Network and people calling in to get advice. But the fact is, is that sorcery in those days was not the way we think it today. And Satan wants us to believe it so. Satan wants us to think that it was this stupid, idiotic things that nobody would ever fall for. But let me ask you this. Have you ever seen someone take a stick and throw it on the ground in front of you and make it look like a snake? Have you ever seen someone take a cup of water straight out of a lake right before your very eyes and turn it into the blood? Have you ever seen someone who can go to water and make frogs come out just like Moses did? 
Keep this in mind also that the, that the magicians, the sorcerers, these were the scientists of the day. There wasn't a pyramid built. There wasn't a mansion built. There wasn't a granary built without consulting the gods. There, this, this system of geometry, and if you study into ancient history, numbers, geometry, mathematics were considered a sacred art as well as a science. This is why you find the ancients obsessed with numerology. Astronomy, the science that we think is completely bereft of any sort of religious or spiritual connotations, meant everything to them. And they were able to map out the planets to understand when eclipses would come. They didn't do this without understanding mathematics. They didn't do this without being able to chart all these things. And on top of that, they had one of the most uh, formidable systems of medicine. The Abers Papyrus, which was one of the oldest medical texts in the entire world that we have found, is the first text that we know of that can demonstrate the method of circulation in the blood and talks about how the heart beats. These people were not fools. If they built the pyramids and they were using sorcery and witchcraft to do it, clearly they weren't dumb. They were the scientists, the engineers, and the physicians. They were the top of the day. And when Pharaoh consulted them about these miracles, he could lean on their wisdom, and it was enough for him to say, I, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Now you have to understand this. Egypt was one of the pinnacle civilizations when Moses leaves. The mathematics, science, engineering, Astronomy and medicine were all at their top level. Moses, as it's, we're told in Acts 7, verse 22, says this, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Let me ask you this. Did God need Moses to use all that his training to lead his people free? Did he, need, did he need all the mathematics, geometry, chemistry, all the hard sciences that they had to lead his people? As a matter of fact, what did God do with Moses? He said, you're going to go live as a shepherd for 40 years. And then when you feel like you can't speak anymore, I'm going to send you back. Could God's people imitate the things of the Egyptians? We know that the sorcerers and those who work for Satan will imitate the things of God, but could God's people adopt, integrate the things of Egypt into their medicine, into their lives? Could they do it? Well, we know how that worked out with the golden calf, right? Where did they even get the idea of the golden calf if not from Egypt? That didn't work out so well. And even Jeroboam, when he attempted to do that years later, had two golden calves. That didn't work out so well either. But what about medicine? What about medicine? Could Moses use the advancements that they had in Egypt to help God's people be healthy, to help them be free from disease, to help them live longer and happier? Could he do it? Is that something that God would have said, yes, Moses, you, I'm, I had you study under the greatest in Egypt so you could do for your people what I can't do. Would he have done it? I think I already implied the answer. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Because we, in order to understand whether or not God's people could adopt the system of Egypt, we have to understand what God's system was. So Deuteronomy chapter 7. And these are a series of promises that we're going to read. Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting in verse 12. And he says this, Then it shall come to pass, because you listen to these judgments, and keep them and do them, that the Lord your God will keep you with, will keep you with the covenant and mercy which he swore to your fathers, and he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the land, your grain and your new wine and your oil and increase your cattle and your offspring of your flock in the land which he, which he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all the people. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all the sicknesses 
and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt with which you have known, but will lay them on all those who hate you. This blessing of Deuteronomy 12 through 15, this was dependent on their faithfulness to God. This was actually dependent on them being distinct. This was dependent upon them obeying the things that God told them to obey and do. This was dependent on their faithfulness to Him, their trust in Him. Yet He would lay none of the terrible diseases on them. Uh, just as a brief aside, it is interesting to note that one of the earliest examples of smallpox that we have in the world is a mummy that dates just after the exodus of Egypt. We found it, and we can see the pock-marked face of it. And they have looked very closely at it in a microscope, and sure enough, it is smallpox. Now, with all the things that you read in the Bible about leprosy and mold and discharge and all these other things, you ask yourself, why wouldn't they write about smallpox? Why wouldn't they be talking about that? Why wouldn't they? And listen, smallpox didn't just exist among the Egypts. We have evidence in the Greeks. We have evidence around the Romans. We have evidence among the ancient Indians. We have evidence among it among the ancient Chinese. It's all around the world. Why not God's people? Why is it not mentioned in here? Could it be that even though they weren't entirely faithful to this promise, that God protected them? Could it be that maybe the methods that God had given them, maybe that protected them? We don't know exactly. But what we do know, there's no mention of it anywhere in the Bible. And even in Jewish history, you can read Josephus. You will find no method, mention of it among God's people. It's very interesting. Anyways, back to the passage. Let's go to the next one. We're going to go to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23. Exodus 23. By the way, just to be completely fair, fair, I've read a number of commentaries on this idea of smallpox in the Old Testament. And um, the only example that even comes close where they can translate the Hebrew word, and it means like an outbreak of boils or sores, is when Job is afflicted with sores. That's the only one. And there's no guarantee of that. And notice that was different. Who afflicted Job with that? Satan, right? So Exodus chapter 23, verse 22 Starting in verse 22, this is what he says. And if indeed you obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you to the, into the land, bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. You shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. Verse 25, you shall, not serve, you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water and will take away sickness from the midst of you. Now, I just want to pause right here. I want you to see some, there's a contrast here, verse 24 and 25. And I say a contrast because He's telling them what he, is, what he is asking them not to do. And then verse 25, he's telling them what he will do, right? It's a condition, promise sort of couplet. But one of the interesting things is this, is what is he telling them not to do? He's telling them not to imitate anything that they do. He says, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works. Don't do as they do. Be distinct. Don't follow them. And what's the promise? In verse 25, he will bless your bread and your water. In other words, if you don't do what they do and you come into straits, you lose your job, you lose everything you have, don't worry, God will still provide for you. And then he says what? In verse 25, and I will take sickness away from the midst of you. So if you don't live the way that the idol-worshiping people live, if you don't engage in what they engage in, if you don't worship their gods, if you don't practice sorcery the way they do, I will promise to take care of you and I will remove all the sickness from you. That is the condition and that is the promise. The question is this, is do we actually believe this today? We'll get in more into that on part two of this because it'll get us closer to today. But I just want to show you in the Old Testament 
how God set up his method of healing when he birthed the nation of Israel from Egypt and their, and their sojourn and bringing them into the land. Let's go to Exodus chapter 15. And this is important. I want you to see this. It's often, it, this, is, this has often been uh, mysterious to me and then I didn't understand it until I finally read it about, I don't know, 30 times. I'm a slow learner sometimes. But I, I think I understand it now. This is after, this is after the, the, the Red Sea collapses on the armies of Pharaoh. They crush them. And chapter 15 is mostly the song of Miriam and the song of Moses. And they're singing their victory song. And after this incredible victory where the armies of Pharaoh are drowned in the Red Sea and God has delivered his people, now they are a free nation. Okay? After all of that, what's the very next thing that happens? God brings them to the bitter water of Marah. The, 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 the uh, well or the spring which was poisonous. So it starts in verse 22. And you got to have to ask yourself why. And the answer is actually in the text. Verse 22, so Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea and then they went out to the wilderness of Shur. And they went there three days in the wilderness and they found no water. Now when they came to, Mar- now they, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah for they were bitter. The word Mara actually just means bitter. That's what it means. So they actually named the place bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Mara. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And so they cried out to the Lord. Now, I just want to stop right here. This is how interesting uh, believers are. God led them to the Red Sea where their backs were against the water. And Pharaoh and his chariots and his armies were going to crush them, right? And then miraculously, the water opens up and they walk across the sea as if on dry land, seeing giant columns of water, and they cross over. And as soon as they get thirsty and they run out of provisions, they're upset. What are we going to do? And the answer is, well, we were just delivered miraculously. We can trust in the Lord. This was a test. Will you put your trust in the Lord? Can He deliver you? If He can save you from the armies of Egypt, Surely he can provide you water in the wilderness, right? This is the idea. And so notice what happens. He says, so he cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them. And there he tested them. So notice the Lord tested his people. Will you trust me? Yes, people go, well, you know, I, I trust the Lord. I mean, think about it. I, I, just, I just want you to think about this in our more modern day. When people have maybe a cold or flu or, or something that, that, you, that you have a 99.8, in some cases, 99.8, or, or sorry, 99.98% chance or, or things like that, we become afraid. And we say, we say to the world, save us. Give us something to save us. Please save us. And then when our loved one has terminal cancer, stage four, filled with tumors, we go there and we say, we need to have a prayer session. Now, how is it that prayer can save someone with stage four cancer, but can't save us from a disease that we already have a 99.7, 99.8, and 99.998% chance of surviving? How does that make sense? How is it that we know that the Lord can save us at our uttermost extremity, but when it comes to whether our bread and our water are secure, we're like, we don't know what to do. He's either the God that can save us from the greatest extremity and the God that can provide for our necessities, or He's not a God at all. It's just the way it is. Take it or leave it according to the Scriptures. And he goes on. He said, if you diligently, here's the test, here's the statute, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought upon the Egyptians. I am the Lord who heals you. That's what he says. Notice the condition here. If you obey me if you don't worship the idols, if you don't do this, right? That's God's system. Question is, has it changed? Does God change? Is, is, is not following Him, obeying Him, not 
becoming like the world, is this still not a condition for healing and health? Or is this just regulated to the Old Testament? You'll have to listen to the next presentation to see the rest of that. But, shameless plug. But what was God's system of healing? What was God's system of healing? Because we're touching on it. We see that it's trusting God. By the way, I just want to point this out. Has anyone ever seen a spring that brings forth poisonous water? Anyone ever seen one? Maybe, maybe uh, we, we call them geysers. You know, those waters you can't drink, you'll get sick, you'll die. Or if you fall in, you'll melt, right? You wouldn't drink those waters. There are other springs that are poisonous. But you tell me, is there every, any of those poisonous springs, could you, uh, no, these aren't real trees, but if you took one of those out there and you cut a branch off and you threw it in a spring, would it make it clean? No, absolutely not. We all know that. We <laughs> that doesn't work. But why did, why did God tell Moses to do that? Why did God tell Moses to take a branch, to take a tree and throw it in the spring? Why would he do that? He was teaching them that using the simple things that God created, it was to work hand in hand with the promises of God to bring healing. Everyone in the camp knew that that tree did not cleanse the water. Everyone knew that. But it was designed to put this in your mind that you use the things which God has created and still depend on Him for health, for vitality, for wellness, to take away the poison out of your life. There was always supposed to be a principle where we are to use the things that God has designed to bring us better, to make us better, but we still depend on Him. So what were God's methods? Well, and, and I don't have time to read every single passage, so we're going to kind of bullet through them. The first one is quarantine. And if you were to read in, in Leviticus chapter 13, which deals with uh, leprosy, you will find this about quarantine. It says this, verse 13, chapter 13, verse 46, it says, And he shall be unclean all the days he shall be unclean. He is unclean, and he shall dwell alone in his city. And everyone in the city shall also be unclean who does not have leprosy or has not been diagnosed. Now, that's not actually what it says. In case you were wondering, it says this. It says, he is unclean and he shall dwell alone. His habitation shall be outside the camp. I just have to point that out. When we talk about quarantine, it was the leper who was removed from camp, not the camp which was then isolated, even though not everyone had leprosy. And then every other city inside Jerusalem was to be isolated. That's not how it was ever done. You took the sick and you separated them. That's what you always did. What about blood? Blood in the Bible has always been sacred. In Genesis chapter 9... Verse 4 through 7, they are told not to consume meat with blood or, shed, or, or they were not to consume meat with blood and even to be careful to shed blood for the life is in the blood. The first, penal, or first penalty for death for murdering someone is found right there in Genesis 9 because the shedding of blood was so important to God. As a matter of fact, when you read in Revelation, it is the souls of the altar that cry out, uh, the souls that are slain under the altar, which is like the blood of Abel, which cries out. The life is in the blood. And the idea is this, is that if you weren't to eat meat that had blood in it because it would taint your own blood, because you were putting the life of the beast in your own blood, then you could do nothing that could taint your blood. Nothing. Uh, what do we find? Diet. Diet. In diet, what do we have in the beginning? We have manna, right? God gave them manna. Yes, in the very first time, he gave them quail. He gave them the first time quail, but he gave them a diet of mostly manna. And manna was to teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So it was also connected to the Sabbath because on Friday they got a double portion. On Sabbath they got nothing so they could learn that they could trust God for their food, water, and sustenance, right? And what did he give them? To drink. He gave them water from a rock. He was preparing them to be healthy. He was preparing them for the, to enter the earthly Canaan, right? That's what he did. And this system was so effective that the Bible says this. It says that Moses was 120 years old when he died and his eyes were not dim, nor did his natural vigor diminish. That's what the Bible says. Based on that system that he gave them. He also taught them temperance, right? Moderation in what is good and abstain from what is bad. We found the story of Nadab and Abihu who had drank just enough alcohol that, would, that didn't make them stumbling, bumbling, drunk, but just enough that they could not distinguish between the holy and the common, and they were struck dead. He gave them sanitation, right? Clean camp, clean house, clean clothes, and a clean individual. That was the way that he was going to prevent them from disease. And this was unique to all the other nations in the earth. What else did he teach them? He taught them the importance of sin and pointing to a savior. In the, in the case for leprosy, when you read in Leviticus chapter 14, it's beautiful. What happens when you come back from leprosy and you show yourself to the priest, you are to take two turtle doves and you bring one and it's cut and slaughtered. And then you take the other one and you dip it in there. You also put it on top of 
uh, cedar wood and you sprinkle it with hyssop and you tie a scarlet cord, all symbolizing the cross, all symbolizing a sin-bearing redeemer. And of course, you would let the other dove go free. And then the person was to shave his head and his eyebrows and everything, see, making the point that he was to be born anew. This was the whole idea pointing out in leprosy. So how does God do it? We have quarantine, we have sanitation, we have hygiene, we have the blood is sacred, and we have the pointing out that sin and sickness go hand in glove and you need a savior who will deliver you. It is important to point this also out is that we have often looked as leprosy as a death sentence. Once you get leprosy, you're going to die, right? But notice in the law of God, in Leviticus 6, uh, sorry, 14, there's a provision when you get well. In other words, they understood that you could actually recover from leprosy. I didn't know about this, but when we were studying the immune system, my professor was from India. And she told us that there's a fraction of the immune system which is exceptionally rare. And I, and I want to say it's, it's a type 2 delayed, uh, uh, um, delayed type uh, helper cell. And this cell deals with chronic uh, inflammation, in, which is what leprosy is, a slow degenerative disease. And when this cell begins to multiply enough in your body, it will eventually help you clear leprosy. And she told us of cases where they would test people after they got infected with leprosy and how they got better. And they would find this in abundance in their blood, which you almost never find. And this, is, this was fascinating. In other words, that God had designed, even in your immune system, that leprosy could be overcome. And I would say, given the right conditions. Think about that. Now, let's be clear. That's still miraculous because God had designed it. God designed it. But what about the Egyptian system? What about the Egyptian system? Because I'm making this whole point about Moses, and I'm making the point about whether or not they could adopt it. So think for yourself whether or not the Hebrews, after we looked at their system, whether or not they could adopt the system of healing and sorcery as we find in the Egyptians. Well, I already mentioned the Abers Papyrus. The Abers Papyrus is the oldest medical history document talking about the circulatory system, the pumping of the heart. This is very, very old. There's only a few copies, but you can read translations of it online. And so this is one of the ways they would treat a uh, bladder and kidney inflammation. It's difficult to understand their diagnosis because it's nothing like you would understand today. But they, it was, it's essentially bladder and kidney inflammation. This is how they treated it. They would take mashed wheat, date, wheat uh, mashed dates, cooked almonds, uh, water, and you would eat that for four days, and that would help reduce the kidney and bladder inflammation. That sounds good, right? I mean, dates, wheat, almonds, water, that, that sounds good, right? I mean, that's something that we could say amen to. But here's the other thing. This is the other side of Egyptian medicine. Because let's be clear, they were using herbs, they were using things like that, but they also did some other stuff. To treat eye pus, pus was a big deal in Egypt. They, sometimes they felt pus was good and they would do things to actually create more pus and sometimes they felt it was bad depending on where it was. So to treat eye pus, that's the literal translation, they would use a mixture of copper flakes, lead, uh, lead dross, antimony oxide, poppy juice, yes, the same plant which we eventually synthesize, morphine, heroin, oxycodone, uh, and all the other drugs that we use in the opioids, they would use poppy juice, arabica gum, spikenard, rose petals, and rainwater, and they would smear this all over your eyes. I'm not sure how you'd be able to see again after that, but that's what they did. To treat skin diseases, they would make a poultice of a hog's tooth, dog's feces, oil, and berries, and they would smear that all over your skin. Sometimes they would use hog dung, and they would use urine from a pregnant woman, and they would also make a poultice and smear that on the skin as well. Now let me ask you something. Do you think that someone could have come into camp while Moses was still alive and said, hey, guys, I got this new method of treatment. Here it is. Hog dung, hog's tooth. Mix it up with some urine from a pregnant woman, and we can do that. Or he said, hey, okay, okay, okay. We'll, we'll, we'll. I know that some of you have an exemption to hog dung, so we'll use cow dung. And now it's clean. It's clean now. We can do that. Would that be something they could have adopted? The answer is no. Absolutely not. There's nothing in there that you read in the Old Testament that would have ever told you they could have adopted that. It's not there. You won't find it. Here's another form of Egyptian medicine. They had amulets and charms that you would wear. 
They also believed in the timing of disease because they were deep into astrology and everything was related to their gods. Every single form of medicine was related to the gods. As such, there was a specialist for every part of the body as we have today. Great medical specialty. But guess what? For every specialist, there was a god. There was a god that you consulted and the knowledge that they had was tightly, tightly held. It was secretive. It was esoteric. They used strange spell, spells. They used language that not the common person would understand. And they kept it very, very tight because you had to depend on them for healing. Did you have to, in Moses' writings, were they to be sacredly held by the priest and shared with no one else? Or were they for everyone? They were for everyone, right? Everyone was to learn what God required of them when it came to mold, mildew, leprosy, diet, exercise, hygiene. Everyone was to know. In other words, God's message was to empower every person. Every person. And so as we look at this, we say, hmm, could they have adopted the methods of the Egyptians? Well, what about other cultures? What about other cultures? Well, the Ayurvedic medicine, which is very ancient, and we don't know how ancient because the documents are, are constantly, they, they would take the old documents and destroy them and rewrite them. So we don't know how far back they go, but they, we know that they go back pretty far. To treat smallpox, the ancient Indians, the ancient Indians, the Ayurvedas, they, they, would, uh, they would have a god named uh, Satala. And they would make her out of dung because dung in and their culture is a sacred substance because it's what fertilizes the field. It what causes things to grow. Uh, you know, it's, it, was, it was a sacred substance. I mean, the Egyptians used to worship the dung beetle for this very reason. And so they'd make an idol of Satala and they'd put her in the room where the child was sick. And Satala was the goddess of sick children. Not just the goddess of smallpox, but of sick children. And so you would go to the priest and the priest could make certain herbs and decoctions and things like that you would put on the skin. But another thing they did to, to prevent smallpox is that sometimes they would take pus drained from the wounds of smallpox, all the pus, and they would, uh, they would, they would dry it, they, they would dry it, and then they would, they would make tiny, tiny incisions all over your body, and they would smear that crust into those wounds. They would also have you wear a shirt of someone who already had smallpox. This is what they did. And this was always performed by the Brahmin priest because he knew the exact way to do it and the exact time to do it. Could God's people have done that? So all you got to ask yourself, could, when Moses was alive, could someone have come in and said, Moses, we got this way. You, you saw what smallpox did to the Egyptians. You saw how they were dying. We have a way to defeat it. All you got to do is you got to wear the shirt that someone else wore where their pus leaked in the shirt, and that's going to prevent the disease. We'll save everyone. Is that what Moses could have done? Could Moses have said, yeah, yeah, sure. That, that goes along with the, the light I've been given. The answer is no. The answer is absolutely no. But this is, the, this is the deceitfulness of sorcery. It insinuates itself in the things of God. It puts itself there. And, we, and it sneaks in almost imperceptibly, making the very promises that God makes that he will keep us free from disease, that he will make our bread and water sure. This is why when you go back to the scriptures here, let's go to 2 Kings chapter 1. 2 Kings chapter 1, and this is about Ahaziah. 2 Kings chapter 1. Second Kings chapter 1. And this, is, and this is what happens. This is 2 Kings chapter 1, and starting in verse 1. And it says, Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab, and now Ahaziah fell through the lattice of the upper room in Samaria and was injured. And so he sent messengers to them and says, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah departed. Now, I, I know that's not really loving, is it? Right? We would say, come on, Elijah. You need to be more loving. But there's a reason why he says all this. 
There's a reason why, and, and I, I, I'm going to be running out of time, and there's a lot of text, so I'm going to bullet these for you. But you can look them up. I will mention them, but you, you will want to look them up. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, what do we have there? The very people of Baal of Ekron, the Philistines, right? They had a problem, and the problem was they had captured the ark. And when they captured the ark, what happened? They broke out in tumors. All of their medicine, all of their sorcery, all of their intelligence was powerless to stop them. Powerless to stop those tumors. And what ended up happening in chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, what did they do? They ended up making an offering to God and sending the Ark of the Covenant back to God's people. That was the only way to prevent the, the sores from breaking out. That was the only way to stop the boils. It was to finally say, our science, our medicine has nothing on the God of Israel. The only way to get rid of this is to say, we're sorry, God. Here's your here, take, take your presence from us. Send the ark back to God's people. That was it. Do you not think that Ahaziah had heard that story? Why would you go to the very people who were powerless to stop boils in the face of God instead of going to God's own prophet? Who was there among you? This is the other condemning point. In 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 through 21, what happens? Elijah's responsible for resurrecting the, the widow's son of Zarephath. He resurrects him from the dead. If you were severely injured and you said, well, gosh, my God, the God who I was raised to know and understand, he was able to afflict the Philistines with boils and they could not shake them no matter how good they were at medicine, no matter how good they were at science, except for when they finally said they were sorry and sent the ark back that God delivered them. And then we have a prophet among us who actually resurrected someone from the dead, something that doesn't happen very often. Just raise hands. How many of you have seen someone resurrected from the dead or participated? Go ahead. Right, that's what I thought. Because we don't see that. That was miraculous. It's not something that happens every day. It was also that by the same prophet Elijah that he brought famine in the land and in three and a half years at his word when he prayed, the rain came. So why is Ahaziah not going to see the prophet of God? Why? Well, it's because it goes back to all those promises that were made to God's people. If you obey him, if you keep his words, if you follow his covenant, then he'll heal you. You see, Ahaziah knew that he wasn't living in harmony with God's word. And so, because he didn't want to live in harmony with God's word, because he didn't want to repent, because he didn't want to hear about how he was a sinner and how he needed to change his life, he would rather take his chances with a pagan priest of Baal of Ekron, who, by the way, has exceptional skill. Let's not, be, let's not sell these guys short. They had exceptional skill. It, one of the fascinating things that you can find in history is that many of the surgical procedures that we have today, many, believe it or not, the ancients had actually done. There was a, there was a story, there was, a, there was a, uh, an ancient inventions or episode, and they showed that they found this, this tiny little case from a physician who had been buried in a, in a, Roman, in a, in a Roman graveyard. And they didn't want to open it, so they took, a, they took an x-ray of it, and they saw these tools in there. And the archaeologists were like, we've never seen tools like this ever. And so the archaeologist was trying to figure out what these tools were. They eventually opened up the case. They looked at the tools. And one day, the archaeologist was talking to one of his friends. His friend was an ophthalmologist. And he says, have you ever seen anything like this? And he says, absolutely. And he showed him the modern tools that we use to remove cataracts and do eye surgery. They're almost exactly the same. You think about that for a moment. The pagans weren't idiots. They could do medicine. They could do these things. That's a reason why Ahaziah went to them. But that's not what God had in mind for his people. That's not what he had in mind. He says, you don't imitate them. You don't worship their idols. You don't do as they do. Moreover, one of the major factors of all disease and sickness is sin. And not turning to your Savior, not addressing the sin issue, reduces the ability for him to heal sometimes. I would almost say all the time. Keep in mind this. What about... What about, and this is, and of course he dies, Ahaziah dies, but what about this? Think about this for a moment. What a difference between Naaman and God's own king, Ahaziah. What a difference. Naaman has leprosy and he hears the word of his little maid, the servant, and he says, okay, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And he goes on, and this is found in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. And he goes on and he, he, goes, to see, he goes to see Elisha. 
He goes to see Elisha and he goes all the way into he goes all the way into Israel and he's looking for Elisha. And what does he do? He brings his retinue, he brings his gold, he brings his silver, he brings his fine linens, he brings everything, and he goes to meet Elisha, and Elisha does sends a servant, says, Go and wash in the river seven times. And what happens? Naaman gets angry. And Naaman says, ah, you know, this is not how they do it where I'm from. This is not how they do it in Syria. If a man of prominence and wealth comes to you, the doctors of Syria come out and they tell you how great you are. And they say, oh, we're going to help you. And they wait on you hand and foot. How dare this man treat me like this and then send me to a muddy river where he expects me to get well. This is leprosy. This is the worst thing ever. This is going to cause me to lose everything. How dare he do that to me? Elijah didn't care. Elisha didn't care. Still had to go do it. And what, is his, what, what do his servants say to him? They say to him, they go, my Lord, if he had asked you to do something extreme, if he had asked you to march up a mountain barefoot in the snow, if he had asked you to eat some sort of herbs and poisons or whatever, you would do it. If he asked you to make a sacrifice, if he asked you to give up your gold, if he asked you to, 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 to burn your chariot with your horses on it and, and dance around it with a linen cloth on, you would do it. Why don't you just trust in his word and go dunk yourself in the river seven times? And of course, we know the story he does, and he's restored to health. He's absolutely restored to health. Now, does he believe that the river actually healed him? No, he believes that God healed him. But again, notice the, notice the methodology here. God used with, the, with uh, his people as they came out of the land of Egypt a piece of wood to throw it in a spring to make it well. Everyone knows that the wood did make, make the spring less poisonous. Just like we know that the, the muddy river Jordan back, uh, dunking seven times in the river probably doesn't make leprosy go away, although I do believe that hydrotherapy could boost the immune system and help, but that's not what he was doing. He was learning to trust in the Word of God. And so what happens? And this is my favorite part in uh, 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. And again, because we're short on time, I'm just going to bullet right through it. This is my favorite part. Naaman recognized something that Ahaz knew as well, is that when you go to God for healing... It, you also have to change your life, particularly when you've been living outside of God's word. And so what does Naaman do? He tells him that he wants some soil from the land because he wants to worship God where he is. And then he, he understands that he's not going to worship any other God. He gives up idolatry. And then what does he do? He says, please, there's times that as, as my position in state, I have to appear with the king when he goes into the temple to worship the idols and he leans upon my hand. I hope that this is not offensive to God. And Elijah says, go in peace. Elisha says, go in peace. But he understood something. He understood that if you come to God for healing, you have to leave idolatry behind. You have to leave it all behind. And uh, too much, too much. Uh, there, there's, there's so much that I, I want to share, but I'll, I'll uh, get through this. Um, this is... This is, <laughs> well, okay, you, you said so. <laughs> Twisted my arm. So go to, we're going to look at this. I just want you to see this. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 38 and 41. 2 Kings chapter 4, and this is, this is more of Elisha doing, doing work here. And uh, actually, sorry, we'll go to uh, 2 Kings chapter 2 first, because then chapter 4 is going to make more sense. So chapter 2. Verses 19 through 21. 19 through 21, it says this. 2 Kings chapter 2, 19 through 21 says, Then the men of the city said to Elisha, Please notice the situation of the city. It is pleasant, as my Lord sees. But the water is bad, and the ground is barren. And he said, Bring me a new, a new bowl, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then they went out to the source of the water, and cast the salt there, and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. And, and it, it there... It shall be no more death and barrenness. And so the water remains healed to this very day, according to the saying of Elijah, which he spoke. Now remember, Joshua had put a curse in Jericho. And not only put a curse, but it cursed on the spring. So the spring brought forth water that could grow nothing. And it was a terrible place. And when the, the school of the prophets, the young men said to him, Hey, Elijah this, is actually, Elijah, this is a good place. Maybe we can heal it. The city had been rebuilt by Ahab, which cost him his first son and his last son as the curse of uh, Joshua had made true, but it nevertheless it was rebuilt, and they said maybe this can be a place for healing. Maybe it can be, but the problem is the spring was cursed. The spring was bringing forth again poison, 
And so what does he do? He gets a new bowl and sprinkles salt in there. And again, does the salt heal a spring? Even a bowl of salt. Even if you had gallons of salt, would it heal a spring that is poisonous? The answer is no. But this shows that participating in the things of God, and there's a spiritual lesson there, a new bowl representing the new life, and salt representing the distinctiveness of God's own people. All of this poured into the spring, showing that God can bring forth new life where there's only poisonous, and that can heal people. This is His method. This is what He designs to do. To show you that participating with natural means, participating with the things that He has, that He can bring about miraculous results, which is exactly what He does. And notice here, this is, corresponds with 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 38-41. through Kings chapter 38, sorry, 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 38. Through 41. And notice here, so he says this, and Elijah, and Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in the land. Now the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, and they said to his servant, put in a large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. So one went into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine, and they gathered it from a lap full of wild gourds, and they came up and sliced them and put them in the pot of stew, though, though they did not know what they were. Then they served it to the men to eat. And now it happened as they were eating the stew that they cried out and said, O oh, man of God, there's death in the pot. And so they could not eat it. And what does Elijah say? He says, so he said to them, bring some of the flour. And the other translations will say meal. And he put it in the pot and he said, serve it to the people that they may eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. Now, the many commentators and archaeologists, they all believe that this plant is the colosynthesis plant. And it's sometimes known as bitter apple. The colosynthesis plant, they're actually trying to develop anti-cancer drugs based on the seeds of it because it is tumor toxic. The flesh itself, though, is very poisonous, and it has been known to make people very sick and die from it. And this plant grew wild in, in that region. And so they believe that they took that plant and put it in the stew, and if you ate it, or you ate stew made with it, within a few hours you would have gastritis, diarrhea, vomiting, and you would die. That's what would happen. But what, is a, what does Elisha do? He uses meal. And meal would, have, meal would have possibly been wheat, spelt, barley, lentils, all those things. And it would have been enough fiber that it might have neutralized it. But it doesn't matter. They did what Elisha had said based on the word of God. Again, using natural remedies to reduce death. But most importantly, trusting in God. You see this. Over and over and over again, trust in God, use something natural. Trust in God, use something natural. Yes, could meal itself actually have done the job? Yes, it could have, depending on how many gourds they had in there and how much meal they used. It could have. But the point is this, this is how God works. This is how he healed them. They didn't call someone and say, hey, what should we do to the physicians of the other tribes? And they say, well, dump some lead in there, put some mercury in there, stir it around, and everyone will be fine. No. That's not what they did. And this goes back to the promise that God had made to His people. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 15. This is the promise that He had made to His people if they're willing to be distinct, if they're willing to follow God, right, with the waters that were bitter. What does He say? Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, and again, he says this, verse 26. And of course, this is with the waters of Marah. If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which, ha which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. I am the Lord who heals you. This is the idea. Whatever medicine there was in those days, and believe me, people have studied the Abers Papyrus, what the Egyptians could do. And they understood how to deliver babies, how to deli deliver breech babies, which, believe it or not, the Hebrews knew because they were Hebrew midwives who also knew how to do that. They knew how to do surgery. They knew how to take care of all sorts of diseases. There are remedies in the Abers Papyrus which are actually based, which we can look at today and say it's scientific. We'd say, well, that would probably work. There are people who've looked at it and say, well, some of these things would probably work. But God's people were not instructed in that way. They were instructed differently. They were given a different message of health 
and vitality. And the first and foremost was putting their entire trust in God for healing. And God gave them things that they could do to participate with him, whether it was natural remedies, whether it was sanitation, hygiene, a proper diet, all those things, rest, all those things he gave them to put their trust in him because he knew that one day plagues will come for which nobody has an answer. And the only answer will be to trust in God. And this brings me to my final story here in, out of the Bible. And this is in Isaiah chapter 38, verse 21. Isaiah 38, verse 21. And it's very simple. He says this. Uh, Hezekiah is sick. He has, a, he has a boil. Some people believe it might have been a cancer. Some people believe it was something else. Uh, all we're told is a boil, which is this idea of a swelling or inflammation, maybe a sore. That's the best we can get from the Hebrew. And what is, what is it that Hezekiah does? He prays to God. He knows that only healing comes from him. But then what happens? This is what it says. Let them take a lump of figs and apply it as a poultice on the boil, and he shall recover. Let's be very clear. If God can cause a spring that is poisonous to be made clean through salt, through a branch, or from poisonous food to add just a little bit of flour or meal to it, if he can do that, then he could, he could merely speak it into existence. God could merely ask Isaiah to lay his hands on his head, and that would be enough. He could do that, right? But he chose to use a poultice of figs on this boil and says that he will get better. Why not, with Hezekiah's wealth and the intelligent people around them, why not send to the wise men of other nations where they could use mercury or lead or they could use some sort of poison to inject in the boil that would cause it to rot from within and die? Why not try to cut it out? Why not try to figure out some way that the ancients were using to treat this to get him better? It's because they understood something. Healing comes from the Lord. Healing comes from the Lord. It's fascinating to know this, though, that they're currently, this, this, was a, this is an interesting article, <laughs> very interesting. It's a it's 2018 article published in Onco Targets and Therapy. And the article goes through fig extract, using fig extract, and they were doing it in vitro, so they were using uh, breast cancer cells. And they were looking at breast cancer cells, and they were putting this fig extract on them, and they were noticing how these cells would be destroyed through using this fig extract. And you know what their conclusion was? They said, this is great. Maybe we can find something in the fig that we can turn into a drug and synthesize to give to people with cancer. Abandon the fig, find a way to do it, to turn it into a drug and do that. This is probably the crux to the matter. Are we going to put our trust in God and the things that he has provided? Or are we going to go for the medicine of Egypt? The medicine of Egypt is sorcery, and it's always going to approximate itself to the things of God. But at this stage and where we're standing this day, we have to ask ourselves, have we not been given a distinctive message? Have we not been given a path of healing? It is important to note that during the 1918 Spanish flu, that there was an article, and everyone's familiar with the article published in the Lake Union Reaper, and about the seminary, right? Most people are familiar with that. But the one article that they're not familiar is the one published in the Review and Herald of that same year. And the article was written by a physician living in Arizona. And he said this. He said that people come to me not knowing that I'm a physician, but knowing that I'm a Seventh-day Adventist because they believe we know hydrotherapy. He says, my wife has taught the Presbyterian minister's wife how to do hydrotherapy and saved her entire family. People are coming to find out about what we're doing using hydrotherapy, beating the Spanish flu, beating it right there in the midst of it. He was using hydrotherapy to feed it, and he was begging the readers in the review. It was a letter written. He was begging them. He says, let's not abandon this. Let's not abandon the, this, this powerful therapy that God has given us, it gives glory to God. We can say, look what God can do with simple means. And people would say, my goodness, you have a message from God because this works. And you know what he said? He said, if we don't learn to do this, other diseases will come upon us. And if we fail to learn the lesson now, we'll fail to learn it again. Think about it. We had an opportunity to show the whole world that we have a message from God that brings healing a distinctive and powerful message. The Spanish flu within about a year killed 50 million people worldwide. 50 million, maybe even more. There were whole towns that were wiped out. This current pandemic has killed probably about 5 million going on almost two years now. We have a population of over 7 billion. 
1918, maybe $3 billion. That's how bad the Spanish flu was compared to what we have. And they were using hydrotherapy to boost the immune system and save lives. We have an opportunity, just as God's people had when they left Egypt, to have a distinctive healing system. A system that is not like the world that points to the creator, points to simple means, and points to knowledge that is available to everyone who asks. Will we imitate the world or will we imitate the things of God? Let us bow our heads. Gracious and heavenly Father, I thank you for your holy scriptures. I thank you for history and I thank you for all these things that we get to study and learn. I thank you, Lord, for the patience of the saints. I know I went long, but I thank you, Lord, that we could look at these things. And I just pray that we will ask ourselves, what's the difference between the world's methods and the methods we've been given? And I also pray that we will look in faith and say, as for me and my house, we will trust and serve the Lord. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Thank you so much for listening. We record these messages each week at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Adairsville. And if you're ever in the area, we'd love to see you. Stop in and say hi and enjoy some good Southern food with us. We'll see you next week.